the thoughts were kind of going through my head, you know, that, that this is it. I'm going to die face down in the dirt in Iraq. Like you, you, on some level, you know, it's coming. In today's episode, we are joined by Mike Schlitz, a former army veteran with 14 years of service. This is a heavy and enlightening episode with Mike from being blown up in Iraq, working with the Gary Sinise Foundation to continuing to serve and motivate other veterans. This is an episode we can all learn from. Real stories, real heroes, for a real cause. This is Never Left Behind, the podcast. Mike, how's it going, man? I appreciate you jumping on tonight's podcast with Dan and I and for being on the show. I know that we've had talks of having you on for quite a while now and life gets kind of crazy. I know with all of our schedules of getting busy and, and wrapping up this book and obviously you being a huge part of that book, but I'm so glad and and uh, honored to have you on tonight. Oh, it's completely my honor. And, you know, you guys are doing a fantastic job with the book. And I'm honestly, I can't wait to see it. Yeah, it's it's coming along. I think we're about oddly like 98%. I mean, the final 2% is basically just, you know, having the final editor go through the transcript, making sure all the writing looks right. But all the designs, the photos, everything is laid out. Page numbers are done and all that. So we're excited to share it with people like you that are involved in it and, you know, to the rest of the public and people that want to purchase this book and, you know, read more about stories that they haven't heard before. No, and I, and I, I think people are really wanting that, you know, mm-hmm. when we always talk about this huge disconnect between the civilian population, and the military population. And, you know, I always hear veterans say, you know, they, they don't understand. I'm like, well, if you don't share your story, you'll, they'll definitely never understand. So I think uh, this will kind of help yeah and that's such a powerful sentiment that a lot of people i mean including myself i didn't i heard it a little bit but i didn't really take it to heart it was like i didn't want to share my story Uh, i don't know if anybody ever well there's probably a percentage of people who do but um it's definitely a conscious decision that you have to make to be like all right i know everybody i tell this story to is going to grow from it and so it's a it's more of a positive thing than a, a negative thing no, oh, I, I absolutely agree with that. I mean, if you think about, you know, listening to the World War II era veterans and the Vietnam veterans and, you know, you always gripped to their stories. You wanted to learn from them. And, mm-hmm. you know, now it's our turn to share our stories so that other generations and, and the public can learn from us. It, it's kind of crazy because I don't want to get too sidetracked, but what you just brought up is interesting that I feel like we're kind of in a similar era as far as how society and the community, you know, supports veterans like we were back in World War II. Like a lot of people that were coming back from World War II, everybody was super supportive, wanting to get involved to helping. And you still had that with Vietnam, but I feel like Vietnam veterans had it a lot harder because they had that whole, you know, kind of 70s movement going on. Um, You know, no one was really welcoming to people coming home and they wanted to, you know, basically you know remove everybody from war but you're kind of seeing that same similar pattern with world war ii veterans as you're seeing now with like global war on terrorism veterans in the past 20 years no i would agree with that so i want to kind of go back and 
I want to start from the beginning. Where did you initially grow up and, and what was the deciding factor of what made you, you know, what made you want to join the army to start? Well, the, the growing up part's always difficult. Um, I was born in Illinois, uh, but I kind of, my dad and my mother were contract jobs, so we kind of moved around a lot. So I spent a lot of time in the South, spent a little time in the North. Um, I graduated high school in Wisconsin. And I think, I, you know, a lot of people can relate to my story, you know, as the rebellious teenager who got into a lot of trouble. Um, you know, I was very selfish. It was about what I wanted. Um, you know, if I wanted to have a good time, I was going to do whatever it took to, to kind of accomplish that. Yeah. Uh, but I also realized I was immature. Um, I really didn't like school. I knew college would be a waste. Uh, you know, I, I couldn't see myself passing my courses and not spending more time partying. <laughs> but at the same time, I, I didn't want just a normal job, like, you know, go work in a factory or something. And for me, uh, growing up, we didn't have a big military presence in our family. Mm -hmm. You know, my, my uncles and stuff kind of were just a little bit too young for Vietnam. My grandfather um, was in the Navy uh, just after World War II, but he didn't really talk a lot about it. Uh, but my older brother had joined the Army. Uh, and until I kind of used him as the example uh, to like what I could possibly do. And so for me, it was simply, I'm going to join the army, uh, do three years, get the GI bill. And hopefully by then have some kind of an idea of what I want to do when I grow up. Do you think it's because, um, I guess, depending on, you know, the certain area of Illinois that you grew up, was it kind of more rural? Like, was there not a lot of opportunities? So do you think that's what led you into kind of getting into trouble and, 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 you know, following kind of that path? Well, I mean, I, like I said, I graduated high school in Wisconsin and it was very rural. Um, no, I just, again, I just think it was more me than anything else in the selfishness mm -hmm. uh, and, and the immaturity aspect, um, you know, not really enjoying school and stuff like that. I had to find other ways to kind of occupy my time or kind of, fill that void. Um, but I'll tell you, um, you know, having that older brother who went in the military and kind of being that example for me was probably the best thing that ever happened to me. Yeah. Were you involved in any, uh, like sports in high school or anything like that? Or were you doing, you know, any kind of the typical stuff, skateboarding, all that stuff in, in the town? Uh, I mean, early in high school, uh, football and wrestling, uh, but then it was more about the money. So I went and got a job. I kind of quit the sports aspect so mm -hmm. I could, you know, have money to go do the things I wanted to do. Um, and that was probably, probably good because, you know, it gave me some sense of responsibility and, and some kind of level of discipline because you had to go to work every day. Yep. But I can, and I think when I did get in the military, that's what drew it, drew me most in was, you know, the, the routine of it and the discipline and uh, while some people shy away from those things, it's really kind of, I wanted more of it. And especially mm -hmm. the challenges that you face as a young private trying to, you know, either learn more things about your trade or try to move up in the ranks. That was actually I mean, my next question is, do you think the army, you know, had a lot to do with you finding that balance of, you know, not getting into so much trouble as a young man. And it's kind of interesting because, I can imagine a lot of people, you know, enlist with still that mindset of getting into trouble, being kind of rebellious, doing their own thing. 
but do you feel the military does a good job of kind of weaning that out and kind of balancing, you know, more of that immature mentality? I absolutely do. Um, I think it, you know, it, it's a cross between uh, the discipline. So, you know, when you are acting immature, you're acting out, you're going to do a lot of push-ups, which I did. Um, you know, my mouth always got me into trouble uh, on that aspect. But at the same time, I was physically fit. Mm -hmm. um, I was more than capable of doing the job. So I was thrown more responsibilities. And I think, you know, that in itself, when they don't really give you an option um, to be that way, because they're putting these things on your shoulders that you have to, to get done. I think it, it forces you to grow up. And of course you don't want to let down the people to your left and right either. Yeah. And it's, it's funny. It seems like uh, a lot of that was really ingrained in you because you said initially you, you signed up just for, I think you said a three-year contract and you were looking to, to get out and use the GI bill. So when did uh, when did you decide like what what switch flip to make you decide to keep staying in? I think you know um, when I came in, I didn't have any fancy contracts, so you know no airborne school, no ranger school, no no anything. Um, so everything that I wanted to do, I I basically had to go and work harder than the uh, others to be able to get those slots and mm -hmm. and go do those things, and I wanted them, so I worked hard and. You know, I stayed focused. And as I started knocking things off my checklist, I think that was kind of the turning point. Like, okay, I, you know, I, I'm doing pretty well in this. This is something I could do for a career. And, um, you know, it was no hesitation really on my first reenlistment. Um, you know, and it's funny because I'd always call my mother whenever it was coming close to me to reenlist. And, you know, she liked the fact that I had joined the military, but she also could see me doing other things. So she's like, but if you got out, what could you go do? Maybe you could go do this or that. <laughs> and uh, when I got to that that big one, that 10-year mark, you know, where you re-enlist in depth, I remember calling her and I'm like, I know, I'm actually thinking about getting out. And she's like, well, what are you going to go do? I said, well, uh, I've got an end to, to be able to go interview to be a smoke jumper. Mm. And without hesitation, she's like, so when you re-enlist, <laughs> you know, so... <laughs> Yeah, and it, it was pretty much like that. So uh, I think if you talk to the people I serve with and uh, had the opportunity to work with, they would all pretty much tell you they could tell I was going to be a lifer. Yeah. What What do you think else you would have been doing if you weren't in the army? Like, where do you think your life would have taken you, or what other interests did you have? Uh, I, I still think there it would have been some level of service. Um, I don't think I would have went necessarily. Um, into the police force, but you know, I could have definitely seen something with the fire department or mm -hmm. like I said, that going and being a smoke jumper, um, uh, still to kind of get that adrenaline when you want it. Um, but it, it's hard to say, you know, but I, I definitely know that it would have been something to, to give back. It wouldn't have just been an office job or a factory job. I just could never see myself doing those things. Yeah. I, I bet you would have, um, life might've taken you out to California. Cause I know how, you know, just from talking to you of how motivated you are, how much of a, a team player you are, especially with all the wildfires that California has every year and the roles and responsibilities that a lot of those firefighters have. I can imagine almost seeing your life kind of either taking you out to the West Coast or, you know, maybe staying around kind of the areas that you grew up in and helping around there. Oh, definitely. Well, um, so 
so I, I'm always intrigued by this question because, you know, we, we get a full mix of people who serve pre 9-11 and then people who were motivated to join because of 9-11 or whatever the case may be. Um, but what what was going on with you? Where were you when 9-11 happened and how did that impact kind of your thought process with staying in uh, in the military? At the time, I was uh, stationed stationed in Korea and, wow. uh, you know, you know, the, the army, um, uh, kind of picked me up for that one year tour twice. Um, and it's by far not one of my favorite places that I was ever stationed. <laughs> you know, I'll take it for the experiences I had during that time frame. But, um, even though it's a one year, um, kind of, uh, duty station, they still give you time to take vacation. And I, I was having to be married at the time and, um, my wife had come over and just south of the uh, peninsula, they have Jeju Island. It's kind of like their version of Hawaii. Yeah, I've been there before. It's beautiful. Oh, it's it's absolutely great. We we spent four days down there. Then we had flown back into Seoul for one night. And the next day, we were supposed to fly to Bali, Indonesia. And we had, you know, I was really excited. We had reservations at Club Med. You know, we're all, you know, we're, kind of recovering from the island hopping but we decided we we're just going to go to dinner come back to the hotel and rest up for our flight at dinner it was like kind of a sports sports bar in school and the football game was on and i remember it flipping to the first tower being hit and everybody thought it they had turned on a movie so we're all yelling put the football game back on and you know then you know the second plane hit the second tower and we realized what was going on and, Jeez. you know, I threw money on the table. We jumped a cab back to the hotel and because of my assignment with the reconnaissance unit, I had a work phone with me still. And it, it was just blowing up and they're like, Hey, vacation's over, like time to come back. Mm-hmm. And so it, it, it got real because, you know, especially with um, Kim Jong-un and the, the many things that he's done over the years, we knew, you know, our attention is going to be on these attacks that we weren't sure what he was going to do. So we kind of amped up what we were doing over there at the time, especially within surveillance and reconnaissance um, in light of the attacks. Wow. Jeez. That's, that's a incredible perspective because I, you know, I don't think we've talked to anybody who was outside of the U S when it happened. Well, I take that back. Tom, Tom was technically in Germany, but he was, you know, it was for training. Um, so it's really interesting, and then I didn't even think about that with uh, the duty station in in uh, in South Korea, and and I'm sure the heightened presence and and everything that was going on with all the military bases really in Asia um, around that time. So it's it's cool to, I mean, kind of cool but crazy to hear that uh, perspective. Mm-hmm. And and again, we ramped up our patrols, but again, you know. Uh, my wife had come over for our vacation and she couldn't even get a flight home because, mm. you know, all the airport shut down worldwide, basically. Yep. So uh, luckily I had a little bit of a rank and, and uh, had my own room with my own bathroom, which, you know, back then was kind of unheard of, mm-hmm. you know, for a lot of people living in the barracks over there. So she basically lived in my barracks for about three weeks until we could get her a flight home. Wow. Jeez. That's, crazy. That's crazy. Yeah. Wow. Um, what was, uh, what was her thought process with everything going on? Uh, like, I, I, uh, could, I could imagine that was also a little bit of fear and anxiety going on. 
you know, the, you know, because we were gone a lot, you know, even within that three weeks, you know, I wasn't spending a lot of time in the room with her. So, you know, she had to deal with a lot of it on her own. And mm-hmm. of course she couldn't reassure her family back in the state that she will still come back at some point when the airports reopen. So there was definitely a lot of stress on her side of it. Yeah. That's yeah. crazy. Um, so after you left Korea and, and, uh, and, and moved on, um, I guess, where did your military career take you next? You know, like anybody, when it, we, everybody knew we were going to go to war. Mm-hmm. So, you know, everybody wanted to go to the next big unit so we could just get over there and uh, deploy. You know, everybody wanted to CIB. Everybody wanted to go test their grit. Um, and I was no different. But I had actually come down on drill sergeant orders. And it's not something in the military I ever really wanted to do. And so I had called Ranger Branch, who handles all the Ranger qualified. And I said, like, I don't want to be a drill sergeant. Can I go to another unit? Um, give me to any deploying unit. They're like, well, we can't do that, but we can send you to the Ranger Training Brigade. So I ended up going down to, to Ranger School and being cadre down there for what was supposed to be about three years, ended up being four years. Wow. Because the war, you know, it lasted longer than any of us expected, especially when Iraq kicked off in 03. Mm-hmm. We weren't getting replacements in, so everybody was just kind of stuck there. Um, and we we're all volunteering to go. We all wanted to, to not be training people. We all wanted to be in the fight. Unfortunately, it just didn't work out that way. Wow. I, ne- I never really thought of that. I guess that makes sense. You know, you don't want to you've already removed some people from the fight. You don't want to remove any more and it's hard to rotate people out, especially if they're eager to, you know, to go and and deploy if they haven't before. Yeah. And I mean, and then you take that experience away from, you know, especially the squad leaders of platoons who've been training their their men. You don't want to just start flip-flopping people all the time. So we all understood it and we all agreed with it. We were just kind of saddened that we weren't getting our opportunity. Yeah. Um, so then when I had re-enlisted in 05 and I knew it was time for me to go somewhere, you know, I just jumped on the phone again and called branch and was like, what is the next deploying unit? Um, and it just happened to be 10th mountain, like fine, send me there. <laughs> um, I didn't care where I was going to go as long as I was going to deploy. And so, I mean, right away they're like, all right. So I got, I signed into, uh, 10th mountain in March of 06 and deployed in August 06. So, I mean, wow. there was very little Jeez. time to do train up and really get to know the men and their capabilities and for them to build that trust with you. Yeah, that's crazy. So, uh, so you went on your, um, I guess it would have been, is that your first and only deployment, I guess at that point, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, what was that like initially going on on the deployment and uh, what type of, what was your typical mission set over there? When we first got over there, our, our company had gone piecemealed uh, across the battalion. So we had one platoon working with the Iraqi police. Uh, we had one platoon that was attached to engineers doing road clearing missions. And then my platoon um, initially we were doing the, QRF, all the quick reaction stuff for the area. And then we decided uh, to start kind of 
putting up key battle positions throughout our area of operations. So we started setting up these battle positions. So our job then was to go out, clear these these homes that we'd want to take over and and fortify. And it was very interesting to me because obviously you go in, you clear the house, and if you found any kind of caches or anything you weren't supposed to, they'd just get arrested and now it's yours. Uh, but that didn't happen that often. So we'd go in and he basically gave the family a ticket that they would take to Baghdad and the government paid for everything that we would take over. Uh, and they basically only had eight hours to move everything out of their house. Jeez. It's, it's so crazy. Cause I think, you know, and I use this example a lot when I go uh, do public speaking, I'm like, you know, just for a second, you know, pause and think about if an outside organization or government came into your house and said, you have eight hours to get everything out of your house. What would you do? Mm-hmm. It'd be hard. You know, would you would you just grab the things that meant the most to you? But there it, it's so different because, you know, they're so community-based and tribe-based. The entire, everybody came out and they would get these houses in eight hours to where they would take sinks and electrical. I mean, Jeez. at the end of it, we're just getting a shell of the building. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah, you know, it was I just can't see Americans being able to do that. We, well, no. one, we're, we, we like our luxuries and we like our things. And most yeah. of us have more things than we need to own. Uh, but I just don't see us being able to do that on the on the average. I mean, you, you got to think about, you know, you're right. There's a lot of people that would freak out that want, uh, you know, trust our government to put them in a different position or a different place rather than their own home. And then you've got the other people that, I mean, look at now where there's the whole, you know, ongoing yearly kind of threat to take away people's guns and you've got a big group of people that are like you know come knock on my door and i'm going to shoot you if you try and take my gun so you try and take their whole house Mm. i just don't see a lot of people cooperating you're right but even if you think about the natural disaster side of things when the hurricanes hit the coastline you know katrina and all all the people having to be displaced Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. how long it took to put get them into housing you know so i don't know you know, to me, it, it was just amazing how quick that process actually happened over there during that time frame. Yeah. How many homes do you think, on average, were evacuated then? Um, through my platoon, uh, probably four or five over about a one-year time frame. Okay. Because obviously, you know, once you take it over, uh, you're basically just laying out Constantine wire near uh <laughs> we actually called one of the the battle positions we had set up the alamo <laughs> because, uh, shortly after we had taken we didn't even have time to get Constantine wire out and we had a counterattack. um and it was just um you know people have different uh ideas of what a firefight actually looks like in real life you know based off movies and books and stuff mm-hmm. but, you know typically they only last a little bit you know they're they take a few shots at you and they run away. But this one, I mean, we, uh, you know, we're taking uh, small arms fire, RPGs, um, you know, machine gun. I mean, it, it was actually a firefight for this. And obviously, you know, we ended up um, being the victors. But after, and that wasn't typical. Usually, you know, we'd, we'd take over the house, throw out some Constantine ladder. Um, that the normal thing is we'd take mortars every day initially. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
we'd bring once we get things kind of settled and calm, then we brought the engineers in and they would fortify the entire place. Um, so we had these little patrol bases out in the middle of nowhere. Um, and then, you know, we had areas for the supply trains to come in and do our resupplies and stuff. So they actually got pretty big over time. Is it a pretty common thing like you see? Cause I know you brought up like how movies kind of portray firefights and I guess this kind of caught my interest, but do you find it um, accurately portrayed in some of the recent, you know, war movies that some of these homes that, you know, the soldiers are clearing out that all of those families have kind of ties to Taliban and they're hiding weapons in the homes or they're hiding, you know, IEDs that are like hidden in really discreet places. Is that a very common thing or is it kind of like more of a needle in a haystack? I, I the, you know, obviously, you know, I have a limited perspective on it, but, but I would say it, it's a lot more regionally based on depending on what the, the where the Taliban's occupying, you know, to say the whole nation's like that. No, Iraq was definitely not that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of times they didn't keep stuff in their houses. You know, they had, we found caches and, and the, the water canals a lot um, in the, the, the fields and places. Uh, we found a lot more caches there than we ever did in anybody's house. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then obviously we, you know, it's hard to go in the mosque. You can't just go in a mosque, but they did hide stuff in mosque quite a bit as well. Yeah. And usually when you guys, you know, seize those weapons or, you know, explosives, I, you guys are taking those out. Are you guys taking those back to basin and, you know, just slapping C4 and basically detonating them, trying to get rid of as, as many, you know, caches that you guys are finding? If, it, if it's a small cache, then, yeah, we can do that. Or we would we'd actually hold on to this stuff in case we ever needed it for something. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like if it was just AK-47, stuff like that. A lot of times it got passed off to the Iraqi army or the police, the Iraqi police for their use because, you know, they didn't have great equipment. So if they could up their their arms room a little bit with the stuff we were taking, they would. Okay. Uh, so it wasn't. And then obviously some of the big stuff that wasn't quite as usable, then the engineers would come in and destroy all that. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. That was always my favorite part, blowing stuff up. <laughs> Who, who does it? Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, just to throw it out there, it's, it's good to blow stuff up, not so much to be blown up. <laughs> I, I, I can imagine. Um, it, and I guess that, that kind of leads into, you know, what, what we want to talk about. I know you've told the story numerous times. Um, but what I, I kind of want to understand is, is your experience, um, you know, when you got injured, but then also, uh, you know, I've, I've read your story so many times and I've just some of the things that happened kind of around you um, to really make sure that you survived through the experience and then also, you know, recovered. It's a, it's a truly incredible and an inspirational story. And you know, I, I just want to, you know, if you, if we can hear it from you, um, that'd be great. Absolutely. So about halfway through our deployment, Again, having the company piecemealed, what we really came to realize is the infantry platoon attached to the engineers weren't really getting, especially for the younger soldiers, weren't really getting the infantry experience in combat they, that they needed. So the decision was made that our two platoons would flip-flop. Um, so in uh, January, early January, like right after New Year's, uh, 
our platoons flip-flopped and it became our job to be the infantry counterpart to the engineers rule clearing mission and and that was it was very simple i mean uh, they had huge fortified vehicles uh, for those listening they can look up like back then we had the rg 31s mm-hmm. we had the the big mine detecting vehicles the huskies and then we had the, the what we called the beast which was the the buffalo um and that had the the claw on the outside of it with the video screen so you could actually interrogate um suspected ied sites without ever having to leave the vehicle mm-hmm. and we just drive around we'd have routes every day that we'd drive and you know a typical day is anywhere from about eight to 15 hours on the road just looking for ieds jeez hmm. you know, and iraq especially oh seven you know what we call the surge uh, you know we had three times more troops on the ground than any other time frame but we were also taking more casualties yep. and more killed in action during that time frame so ieds were just littered everywhere luckily we had these big vehicles and we weren't taking the casualties, but we were getting blown up about two, three times a day. We'd just keep rolling. As long as the vehicles could roll and do the job, we kept going. And uh, But it does take, obviously, a hit on the vehicle. And because we were getting hit so much, the mechanics couldn't turn the vehicles around fast enough. And I ended up being an RG31 short, um, which had all the heavy armor that we kind of needed. So... You know, talking to my chain of command, and it's like, well, I need another vehicle. Like, I have no choice. I'm going to have to take a Humvee. And uh, it's, it, it wasn't great, you know, tack on armor, nothing special. And so I decided to make it my vehicle and put it in the rear because typically when you're rolling, you know, we saw a lot of pressure plates and command deaths, but trail vehicles really didn't get hit that, that often. So mm-hmm. we decided to put it in the back with me. And uh, I had it about a week running missions like that and then on 27 february uh, 2007 we we had about a 15-hour patrol ahead of us and we're about two hours into it and we had come to a dead-end road so we had a clear going down obviously it took us a little bit to get the five vehicles turned back around to come back up and we had kind of picked up the pace typically you travel about two miles an hour when you're looking for ids because any faster, you can't really see what you're looking for. And then when, once you've cleared the area, you can pick up your pace for about 10 miles an hour. And I, I can remember this, the sun was just coming up. So obviously you can see a little bit better. And then it hit, like I, I remember hearing the boom. Um, and before I could really even react to saying anything or doing anything, I was hit the ground. I had been thrown from my vehicle. Mm. I can remember getting kind of hitting the ground and kind of hit the top of my head and my shoulder kind of like piled driving into the ground a little bit you know for those that would, would never really have that experience you know that's definitely an ambush that surprise attack mm-hmm. In training we always said you know if you get ambushed you don't have a lot of time but you need to take that split second to get a battle damage assessment what's going on for me um I really didn't see anything out of the ordinary other than knowing I had been hit, but I didn't see my guys. So my instinct was just to run back and go check on my guys. And as I neared the vehicle, didn't quite make it to the vehicle, 
I started feeling the flames hit me in the face, and I realized I was on fire. I feel like the majority of the fire was on my torso. And so just to get as much of it off me as I could, I went ahead and uh, dropped my body armor, and I just started to roll. And uh, what I didn't know at the time is there was propane involved. So basically every time I'd roll, it just reignite. And hmm. pretty much my, my muscles just locked up and I couldn't roll. I couldn't do anything. Um, you know, I remember screaming like I've never screamed before. Uh, the thoughts were kind of going through my head, you know, that, that this is it. I'm going to die face down in the dirt in Iraq. Like you, you at, on some level, you know, it's coming. And about the time frame, I was really just kind of ready to give up and just die. I can hear my guys yelling for me. So I knew because of the vehicle separation, they would have to come back about a hundred meters. And I'm like, even if they got to me, what could they really do? And before I could even think about it, they hit me with the fire extinguisher. And I always say two things kind of come over you at that, that moment they hit me with that. One's the physical release, you know, it's like you had this huge cooling sensation from the fire extinguisher like an ice blanket, just kind of taking the pain away. And it really did like part of it's probably shot, but it, it, it felt that good. Like, you know, you're not on fire anymore and there's just this cooling sensation. Mm. And then the other part of it would be the, the mental aspect. And it's like, okay, my guys are here. They're going to save me. I've got a fighting chance. Now I'm not going to die here. And I win. And, uh, I really give it to the guys who got to me. Um, you know, they, we train and we train for, for bad days like that. Uh, you know, our crew drills and stuff and, every, you know, you know, assessment of command, who's going to take over and everything we trained happened. Like, I mean, they got security up, they got the HLZ set up, they were having reports going up. Uh, you know, initially they wanted to drag me away from everything. And one of the young sergeants is like, do you got to stop? Like, he's a burn guy. If you drag him, um, all his skin and stuff will scuff off. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of graphic, but I'll just kind of really hit it home. What would have happened if they would have dragged me? If you ever, like, baked chicken, mm-hmm. you know, and it comes out of the oven, it's still hot. And how the, the skin and the meat just kind of pulls right off the bone. Yep. Basically, if they would have dragged me, that's what they would have done to me. Jeez. Um, so, you know, they were smart, you know, he got the spine board, they got me loaded up and they actually carried me to the HLZ. Um, so right there, I mean, between the fire extinguisher and, and not dragging me, I mean, these were all life-saving things that our guys did for me. And unfortunately I'd lost all three of the people in my vehicle. So my, my medic was in the vehicle. Um, and so, you know, it really, we had to rely on our EMT and our, our combat lifesavers because we lost our medic. Um, I lost my gunner up in the turret. My youngest was my driver. And unfortunately the other two, we think probably died on impact from what we can tell, but we know for a fact, my driver uh, burned alive in the vehicle because he couldn't escape. So, Mm. you know, that's all heavy stuff to kind of handle. But even with all that going on, everything else was going the way it was supposed to be going. And, uh, so when the medevac came in to get me and the helicopter touched down. So from the time 
of impact to the time the helicopter lands was just 10 minutes. Wow. So we think about, you know, um, when we talk about, you know, having the greatest fighting force in, a, in American in world history, I really agree with that. The technology, the training that we put behind our service members, like, we're, the reason we have so many wounded veterans now is because we have the capabilities to save lives. Yeah, that's incredible. Is it, um, and you mentioned it was a propane IED. Is that, you know, basically they hide a bomb inside a propane tank and they bury it in the ground? So mine was toward two old school artillery rounds in a propane tank. Mm. And it was buried about six feet under the ground in a culvert. So even though we had cleared it's a metal culvert, so we knew there was a culvert, but we didn't know that that they had stuff inside the culvert, so we couldn't see it or, or tell with our with our mine detecting vehicles. So uh, when it went off, it basically blew shrapnel and propane into the into the vehicle. Jeez, wow, that's insane. I mean, like you said, though, just the incredible amount of training and, and reaction to. Uh, you know, to get a level head and, and know what you need to do and the steps, proper steps to take to, you know, at least triage you and, and try and get you out as quick as possible is, is really impressive. That's, that's really incredible. 10 minutes is, is fast. Like that's mm-hmm. very was, fast. And I was in my first operation in Baghdad in 30 minutes from time of impact. Jeez. They were already, and I mean, I was in Baghdad. I mean, I was, obviously from the burns and, and the propane and everything. And, um, I had respiratory issues and, you know, a bunch of other issues that are just going to be being burned as bad. Um, so I kept flatlining on the table and years later, I actually got to talk to the doctor who operated on me and he was telling me like, they actually took, um, an RPG attack. Um, the only one he ever saw while he was over there just so happened to be when I was on the table and they were trying to, keep resuscitating me it took him about i think he said about eight hours to get me stable enough wow to where they thought they might be able to get me to germany and wow. so they they had to obviously uh put me on special ventilators and stuff to stabilize me to get me to germany and even in germany i had to have a couple more operations uh, they got me stable there and then ultimately a couple of days later uh, I was sent to Brooklyn Army Medical Center in San Antonio, Texas. You know, a, a lot of people um, probably don't know this or realize this, but um, you kind of touched on it a little bit. The the field hospitals in Iraq and Afghanistan were truly like world class, incredible. Like, yes, they're in less than perfect conditions, um, but I just remember I think the first time I actually saw a Da Vinci. Um, surgical robot was in afghanistan um oh yeah yeah and it's it's crazy to think about i don't do you know what that is no i have no idea so it's a surgical robot that somebody anywhere remotely in the world could operate on somebody else in a different location and that's kind of what the intent behind it was is that you could have this world-class um surgeon operating on somebody you know they could be here in the united states and operating on somebody in Iraq or Afghanistan, or if they're, they are there in person, um, the Da Vinci robot has the ability to basically scale your, um, sensory input. So, you know, like a doctor could flinch and, you know, accidentally move a scalpel too far and cut somebody and die. 
Um, but with a DaVinci robot, they can slow down the um, movement to where, you know, you move your hand an inch and the robot only moves a tenth of an inch or a twentieth of oh, an inch. Wow. Whatever you decide that movement is going to be. Um, is so, it ran on satellite then? Is that how it works across the world? Yeah, um, that is how, how it works uh, across the world. But it, it's honestly like a, pretty much a, a modern marvel uh, in the surgical world. But yeah. just in general, the uh, yeah the the field hospitals and the the technology that was put into those to, you know, I hadn't really processed it and thought of it, but that makes so much more sense why we have so many more wounded people um, wounded soldiers coming, you know, coming back from these wars, because like you said, we figured out how to save more people. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I really honestly no, hadn't thought but, about but that. Kind of funny as you had touched on like some of the, the recent movies and stuff for, for our, for, you know, OIF and OEF. Yeah. But, you know, take it back, even though it was a comedy, like, you know, mass was based on, you know, the triages at the mass unit in Korea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, a lot of the comedy, I mean, that was, you know, what they were really kind of doing back then. And, you know, we, we generally have these um, places spread out throughout the combat zones, obviously bigger, bigger units at the bigger locations. Um, That's right. I forgot yeah, about that. I remember watching it as a kid. Mm-hmm. But if you look at, you know, how many people we lost in World War One and World War Two and, and Korea um, and, and even, you know, just shy of 60,000 in Vietnam, a lot of those would survive with the technologies that we have now oh, yeah. and the capabilities that we have now. What I think is kind of crazy, Mike, is is how powerful your body is when you're in shock and you have that quick second to react off adrenaline of how you were thrown from your vehicle. And I, I imagine how you described it, you were already on fire, but your body wasn't recognizing it right away. Your mental, I guess, thought process was more I got to get up. I got to check on these guys and make sure they're okay. And then you realize that you were on fire. That's, that's amazing. And, and, and you know, and you know, the one thing for me is like, I, I never lost consciousness. So like, it's a good and bad thing. Like I remember everything Jeez. Um, from being on fire to the guys working on me to, you know, them even working on me while we're waiting and, and covering me up when the medevac was landing and stuff. And, um, like I ended up losing both my hands, um, not because of the explosion, but because the burns were so significant that I, they ended up having to amputate my, mm-hmm. my hands. Um, but I can actually remember laying on the ground and looking over and I just, if you ever take like lighter to plastic, how it just kind of singes and just kind of bubbles and kind of just gets all mangled. I mean, my hands look like that. So I mean, I knew, Jeez. you know, mentally I was pretty bad off. But again, because of the shock a- aspect, I, I really didn't feel it either. You know, and I was, I was actually trying to consult my men, you know, because they're trying to do the right by me by like, man, you're going to be good. You're good. You're good. You know, and I'm doing the same thing. Um, yeah. But I think it's we train for those things so much and um, and you care for the, for the people you serve with so much that it does just become instinct. Like mm-hmm. everything else is just kind of second to it. What was that full experience like for you then having to stay in the hospital for 10 months and going through, correct me if I'm wrong, but 99 total surgeries to date? Yeah. I mean, the, the, the beginning part, I don't really recall. I'm, I mean, 
I remember when, when I was loaded on the medevac that they hit me with morphine. The, I remember the flight medic who happened to be female um, asking my name and social. And I can't tell you if I got either one of them out. Um, but that's that's really, uh, for four months, my last memory. Um, I was put into a medically induced coma for uh, for good reasons. One, the pain and, and you know, the multiple operations. Um, and because I was burned on 85% of my body, uh, the process for debriding the old skin, they basically just take razors across your body and they debride you. And I, I still remember doing some of that after the medic, medically induced coma, but the majority of it was already done. Um, so that aspect, like I'm, I'm pretty thankful they did that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, is that Four how they treat later. burns? Yes. Like massive burns like that. Are they basically cutting away the top layer of, of skin and trying to, I guess, get rid of everything on top and allow that uh, to shed? If it's third degree burns, it's it's pretty deep. Like, um, like how we have multiple layers to our skin. Like, um, they could see parts of me. They could see bone. Parts of me, they could see the muscle, and the tendons. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, so yeah, I mean, and what they end up doing, well, especially back then, because they they have new technologies now that they didn't have when I was injured. Um, you got to figure that was 14 years ago now. Yeah. So things were different, but they they take cadaver skin and lay it over you so you wouldn't get infected and stuff like that. Wow. Uh, and then the little bit of good skin you have um, has to cover the rest of your body. So you, they call those donor sites, mm-hmm. and basically they would take a a one inch piece of square skin from your body and they try to cover up as much of your body as they can. They'd stretch it out and they'd sew it into you basically. Um, and they would do it over and over and over. So even though I was burned on 85% of my body, if you look at me now, my entire body is scarred because they had to take skin from the other areas so many times. Yeah. <clears throat> That's like going, going back to your question though, like, uh, when I finally did come out of the medically induced coma, I was heavily drugged. I was on all the heavy hitters, uh, you know, multiple levels of morphine and ketamine, um, everything else. So I started having memories, but the way <laughs> I remember it, is it really necessarily the way it really happened? <laughs> um, and I, I talk about like, so at one point, they always try to kind of bring you back to reality. So I can remember my mother and the nurses be like, all right, Michael, you know, where are you? And I'd always get annoyed by it. So I'd always do that big, exhausting breath, Texas hospital. And then, <laughs> then and my mind would just automatically click back that I was a combat. Um, I would try to send my mother and my brother on patrols through the hospital to clear the rooms next to us. And I was trying to teach them, like tell them they need to pie off the corners and, uh, you know, it was just, <laughs> um, you know, weird. But then I was still also having medical procedures and I didn't quite understand it. And so like they, on bath day, they'd have to roll me down and, and, and when they would scrub me, it, it hurt so bad. It was like torture. So even though, like I should have been able to recognize that I was in a hospital and it was friendlies and stuff. The, the torture part is what I kind of gripped to in my head. So um, I thought I had been captured. I thought I was a POW and they could never understand every time they would take me to the shower room. 
that I was always trying to get out of my restraints. I was always trying to get out of the bed. Um, and in my head, I was trying to escape, you know, uh, you know, cause when you train it, you know, one of their, when you're being moved somewhere, it's a great time to try to make a run for it. And, uh, he topped and it's nothing against, you know, the, the cleaning crews or anything at the hospitals, but a lot of them didn't speak English. And so now I'm, I'm drugged. I'm in my room and I don't understand the languages that are being spoken around me. Mm-hmm. So compile that with the drugs. I thought I had been captured. Jeez, man. You know, I would have never thought that. And I'm sure that's where a lot of people think, you know, somebody's completely mentally lost or something, but, um, have you ever gone back and kind of told them that just to, as like an AR, AAR type thing and be like, you know, it wasn't. Oh, I mean, I mean, even at the time, like they could watch my blood pressure and my, my heartbeat whenever they, they would come into the room and start talking, all that would spike. And my mother even recognized it, it was like, Hey, you guys got to leave. Like, wow. look, you're, he's getting agitated. Now mm. didn't know why it was being agitated. They just knew it was affecting me. Yeah. That's, that's crazy. Yeah. I, you know, the only other experience that I can draw from is, is my grandpa when he was kind of going through his, his final days, he was getting drugged up and stuff like that. And I remember he, he went through something similar and, uh, he would always say that it was spiders though. Like they had him on all kinds of drugs. I don't remember what they were, but they would, he would, he would freak out at them and get pissed off and angry. And, and it's just, it's so weird. I'm, I, I would never want to know what that is like, mm-hmm. but hearing somebody else talk about it in a completely different setting just makes me realize that, you know, the, the types of things that people go through just on those, you know, really heavy, um, heavy drugs to, to help with pain. But for me, it, it's also perspective. So like, even when I watch the news now and you see the police trying to detain somebody who's heavily drugged and they're hallucinating or they're acting crazy or, you know, and I see these news clips, I'm like, like, that's what's going on. Like what, what's going on in their head isn't what's reality. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. It's incredible. Um, you know, and I imagine going through all these surgeries and, and everything like that, the support system had to have been there, but then also, you know, do you, do you remember, have you ever reflected back and thought of, you know, what the, the mental challenge was for you and, and what it took for you to get through, you know, all of the, all the surgeries, all the recovery, all the, you know, um, things that you're probably still having to deal with now. I mean, at the beginning, it was just purely survival. Um, you know, like I still remember, you know, I was always trying to get out of my restraints. I was always trying to get out of my bed. Um, and I came really close one time, but I, I kind of go back and I laugh at it because even if I would have been able to get out of it and out of the bed, I mean, they literally had, I, I hadn't moved out of a hospital bed. And at that point, uh, about six months. And Jeez. so I had to learn how to stand again. I had to learn how to walk again. Um, so even if I would have been able to, to get out of that stuff, you know, I probably would have just fallen on the floor. Um, so a lot of that is just, you know, purely survival. You're 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 in this constant fight all the time, and and yeah, the the surgeries are are draining, and the 
and the physical therapy is draining, but you know, you're also dealing with everything else. And, uh, I had an incredible support group. I, you know, my brother was there the first six months. My mother was there from the time I got to Texas and, and is still with me as my caregiver today. Um, plus I had old army buddies who were out of the military who came to visit it. Um, you know, earlier I mentioned about my, I was married at the time of 9-11. We later got divorced, but, you know, she had even come down to visit. Um, and she was remarried. And, you know, she, I think she was actually pregnant with her first child at that time. Wow. Yeah. You know, so I, mean, I had incredible amounts of stuff and uh, old units that like uh, the Ranger Training Brigade out of Fort Benning. Some people I served with, they actually allowed to come down and visit me because, I mean, it hadn't really been that long since I left there. Um, and obviously the news of me being injured went through the camp pretty quick. Mm-hmm. Um, so I never really felt alone. Um, and then there's other aspects like they didn't, there was no mirrors in my room, so I couldn't physically see what I was like. Um, and even, I think I didn't see myself in the mirror until I was already out of the hospital. And it was probably almost a year before wow. I saw myself in the mirror for the first time. And I can remember my jaw literally dropped, like I couldn't believe it, you know, and, you know, the scarring was real bad. Um, obviously now I look different. So even in the book, the picture they see in the book is after all the facial reconstruction and stuff, but, you know, not having eyelids or ears and my mouth being deformed and no nose, you know, just two little holes. Um, that was quite a bit to take in. Like, um, but I think we always kind of use humor and stuff too, but the mental part of it is you got to work through the different phases of grief. You know, I had, to, to come to acceptance about losing my guys. Uh, I had, you know, obviously depression and anger about being injured. Um, you know, the uncertainty about what I was going to do later in life. Cause I had no hands, you know, basically being at that time, almost, uh, completely blind at that time, barely being able to see, um, yeah. I had to work through all that stuff, but I, you know, um, I had, you know, um, different events throughout the time. So mm-hmm. like I got to go to my welcome home ceremony, uh, a great organization, you know, donated, <clears throat> excuse me, donated a jet for me to fly back to Fort Drum. And I got to see all my guys come home and stuff. And it was great mm-hmm. to see them, but you know, I didn't like them seeing me. I couldn't walk at the time. I was in a wheelchair, head to toe bandages. And I just felt weak. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I was mentally prepared for that to have my men see me that way. Um, so coming back from that trip kind of motivated me to get rid of that wheelchair, and, you know, walk a little bit more and, and, you know, had goals of being able to start jogging and stuff later on. Yeah. That's... So that was a good move. But when you start accomplishing that and you don't have the next thing to grab onto, then you start to slip back into that depression and the anger and that's the suicidal thoughts. You know, I battled suicide for uh, probably about two years, uh, pretty significantly, because um, I just didn't want to live the way I was living at the time. Uh, but I can remember another turning point for me was the day I got my first prosthetic. You know, up until that time, there wasn't a single thing I could do during the day by myself. I couldn't dress myself, couldn't, you know, brush my teeth, do hygiene, go to the bathroom, feed myself. And so when I got that first prosthetic, 
that night I fed myself for the first time in probably about two years. Wow. And it gave me that little bit of independency, gave me that little bit of hope, like, okay, now I can start doing some things. Yeah. It's, it's interesting to hear. And obviously, you know, you've been through a ton of surgeries. What is, you know, are, are you all done with surgeries now? And, and what is typically, you know, each surgery like for you? Is it just kind of more reconstructive with more tissue or, or is it all different each time? Oh, uh, the, the very beginning, you know, the, probably the first, um, probably 35 surgeries. Um, uh, honestly, probably first 50 is just everything from skin grafts to amputations. Um, and just all the things that you need just not to have to battle infections and mm-hmm. you know, things like that. And then, then you can start going in and, and, and tweaking the other things. And, uh, but by the time I got to like the facial reconstructions, you know, I've between my face alone, I have probably 30 surgeries just on my face. Wow. Uh, uh, by then, like basically I was having a surgery every three weeks and I'm like, yeah, some people go to work nine to five and I just, my job is surgeries. Like, <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, people could never really understand because like, you know, there's always this nervousness when you're about to get knocked out and go under the knife. And mm-hmm. I just never knew that I'd be in there high-fiving nurses or actually high-nubbing <laughs> the nurses. Uh, <laughs> you know, joking with my doctors. Like, uh, by the time I got to my eye surgeries, I was, I become really close with my eye doctor and like he'd give me a, a fist bump before you know them knocking me out for the final time and uh so like to me it was just like i knew the hospital team i knew the doctors i knew the people who the anesthesiologists these were people i saw on a regular basis so for me there was never any nervousness about it, it was just time to go to work the because you kind of hit on it a little bit but do you think it was finding that humor again and and just you know, kind of laugh off a lot of the, the pain and, and, uh, recovery that got you through a lot um, of it. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, from the very get go. I mean, and I've always kind of been that quick wit kind of humor guy anyway. Um, and like, I always joke because if, if like the average population was in the, in the physical therapy room and they're untypical in the therapy room, um, but there could be between about five and 20 wounded veterans in there. Mm-hmm. And it was just like comedy hour. You know, we're, we're ripping on the staff. They're ripping on us. We're ripping on each other. Um, but it, yeah, it absolutely helps you get through it. I mean, um, it's better than the, the alternative, you know, really harping on it or being down on yourself. Uh, you know, it is deflection in a sort, but, it just allows you to kind of let it go a little bit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's incredible the mental strength and the positivity that you've carried out because I've, you know, um, not veteran related, but I've talked to other people that have had, you know, very life changing physical injuries. And, you know, they've told me that they've all had this similar kind of mental level to where they're, you know, uncomfortable to approach society again to kind of show themselves as society because they, you know, they feel like people aren't going to relate to them or, you know, people are going to look at them differently or treat them differently when it comes to like the work industry. But it's incredible to hear, you know, from you, your side of it that, you know, you had your struggles, 
and everything, but how that's taken you into this positive light. And, you know, what was that like kind of adapting for the first time? You know, you kind of lightly touched on your first prosthetic, but how long did it take you to fully adapt to having both your prosthetic arms? Uh, probably to get both arms in, uh, probably I think the first set I probably got about two and a half years post-injury. Mm -hmm. Um, but then I was still, I had elbow issues to where I couldn't really, I didn't have good range of motion. So there was still even times where I had a prosthetic, but I'd have to go have another elbow surgery. And so it, it would not be down to, uh, I think I have four surgeries on my right elbow and I have seven surgeries on my left elbow to give me more range of motion. Gotcha. Um, so, you know, sometimes you had two prosthetics, sometimes you had one, but I want to say probably um, about three years um, before I was fully capable of like not having to worry about operations anymore in my arms. I could actually get permanently fitted prosthetics. Wow. Um, and now you work out with them. Yeah. 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 I mean, my head, you know, I mean, um, you know, it, you know, it, it's just so funny. I mean, you got to work with what you got, you know, and, and the same with the going out in public, like you were just talking about, it. you know, that was tough at the beginning, you know, having the stairs and stuff. And now I don't even notice it. Like, I know it happens, I mean, but I don't think anybody stares, um, out of disrespect, it's more of that curiosity. I think so. And I think that yep. we're, you know, the adults differ from kids because kids don't have filters, so they'll just ask the questions they want to know. Uh, <laughs> at so least they're straight up. Good, but, <laughs> but, but I always enjoy looking at the parents because you could see the horror. That, like, oh my god, I can't believe my child. I'm like, no, it's good, man. It's good, you know. And uh, you know, I usually answer it, you know, in a PG friendly way. You gotta, um, you gotta think. Half the parents are probably thinking that though. They just have the common sense yeah. not to ask it. Well, you, right. le you learn you learn a little bit of tact exactly. through your, uh, I guess, upbringing. But uh, <laughs> yeah, you have no filter as a kid, so I could just imagine some of the questions that you've gotten. Uh, it, it's it's so much fun. Uh, the kids are the best. I, I actually enjoy it. Um, you know, and even now, like I'll catch a kid staring at maybe not necessarily uh, ask me anything, but they're just staring and they're trying to. You can see the 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 gears turning in their head. I'll just kind of start rotating my prosthetic at 360. <laughs> just let it keep spinning. I'm like, oh, don't worry about it. I'm just part robot. And then that's what I would say. And look <laughs> at me and I'll start kind of doing some of the different functions on my hands, opening and closing them or changing the angle. And they can hear the clicks in the motor. And they're like, man, that's, and it just puts them at ease, you yeah. know, and it definitely puts the parents at ease. I bet they think um, it's cool too, because, you know, yeah. nowadays you have, like Iron technology. Man and all these other like TV shows and stuff oh, yeah. too. That's just, yeah, yeah I'm sure the video games like, nowadays, yeah. like kids are probably totally ecstatic once, you know, at first, like you said, they might be kind of on, you know, defensive mode at first. And then once you kind of bring them in, you show them all this functions, they're like, Oh, that's really cool. I want one. <laughs> but then, then, you know, you go into, as far as the positivity, like, uh, one of the alternatives sucks again. Like it, you can be angry and, and depressed and mad at the world. And it's like, who wants to live that way? Um, so for your own mental health, you, you know, to be more positive is healthy for everybody. But uh, one of the, the experiences I had, I was actually out in LA and I was out to eat with some friends 
you know, there's a bunch of us at a long table and we're laughing, we're joking, we're having a good time, you know, having a couple of cocktails. And, you know, at that time I had both prosthetics or we had just paid the check and we're getting ready to leave. And this guy comes rolling up in a wheelchair, hmm. having to be a Marine veteran out of Pendleton and, you know, missing both his legs. Uh, and he's like, you know what? I, I was injured three years ago. And he's like, I've just been in a bad place. He's like, they've been trying to convince me to get prosthetics forever. And I just keep putting it off, putting it off. He goes, but I sat there at the other, the other end of the bar watching you for like the last hour and a half and seeing you enjoy life and, you know, have fun with your friends, you know, do this stuff. He goes, I actually already just stepped outside and made my prosthetic appointment. Oh, wow. So, you know, there's always somebody looking, whether it's a kid, somebody who's battling maybe their own thing in life, whether it's cancer or illness or death of the family or, you know, a car wreck, somebody's always watching. So if you don't kind of put on this kind of positive kind of, I enjoy life kind of persona, if, if I would have been in that restaurant and I treated the waitress like ass and I was just mad and angry and disgruntled, that veteran would have thought it was all right to be that way too. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And so, look, I can't hide it. You know, I mean, anybody who looks at me knows I'm a veteran. You know, rocking patriotic style prosthetics, got scars. Um, so in a lot of ways, I am an ambassador, whether or not I like it or not. Yeah. Um, so with as much traveling as I've done, I've, I went to places that aren't, there aren't a lot of veterans or there's not a military base. And again, if, if I would have treated people horribly, that would have been their stereotype for all veterans. But if I can have that positive impact, that now becomes the stereotype. It's a great way of looking at it. You know, you've been basically on on everything at some point or another, and, and you've been an inspiration to so many people, and it, it, it's incredible. And I, I love that you know we can share a piece of your story uh, in the book. But you know what? what was the initial transition like for you? Cause I, I know it's obviously very different from a lot of other people, but um, you know, when you, when you, I know you're still connected to the military and everything, but just knowing that you weren't going to put on the uniform anymore. Uh, what was that like for you? I mean, you know, the uniform part for sure, but was mentally tough, you know? Um, and I still, when I, when I work with veterans today and, you know, especially with the ones who are about to transition, you know, I always bring it up that the identity piece is going to be tough. You know, you're going to wake up one day and be like, I don't, I'm not a soldier anymore. Or I'm not a sergeant anymore. I'm not a sergeant major anymore. I'm not a colonel anymore, whatever it might be. Um, and, and it doesn't really matter if you, you're in the service three years, 10 years, 20 years, you know, uh, you, you live this life day in and day out. It, it becomes part of you and you can't help but not live it. Um, but the ones who are going to have a hard time are the ones who can't shed that identity and realize that there's so much more than just being a soldier. There's so much, you know, their friends, their sons, their daughters, their fathers, mothers, you know, all these different things uh, that they can be, that they're not just that. So um, it was very difficult for me, but I also had to realize that it's not all that I am. Mm -hmm. Uh, And now I've had a bunch of different titles and, you know, now I just say, you know, Mike, you know, um, But I think people have to realize that and, and, and to put it in perspective, it's not just military, you know, uh, law enforcement struggle this way. 
you take a doctor or a surgeon who's operated on people for 30 years who maybe had a hand injury or has to retire, um, he's going to have that same identity crisis that mm-hmm. we go through. We, they live it day in and day out. Mm. Uh, so uh, I think I had in that aspect the standard transition. I, I struggled with that just like I think most people would. But as far as the work aspect or finding my purpose in life, uh, you know, I just kind of happened to fall into it. Uh, you know, I had started doing some volunteer work right before I got out of the military with a couple of different organizations. You know, that led to public speaking, which led to corporation public speaking, which led to more and more stuff, which uh, led me to Capitol Hill and, you know, trying to work with veteran benefits within different bills uh, to working for, you know, Gary Sinise, you know, not everybody gets called Lieutenant Dan, their boss. Uh, <laughs> uh, looking back on it, I mean, it's been, uh, you know, the last 14 years and in, in a lot of ways, it's just been a blur. It just kind of fell into it. So I didn't, I didn't have the lot of struggles. The ones um, you do see wounded veterans who do struggle, but typically you have a new outlook on life. You have a new appreciation for life because you're basically getting it given a second chance and you try to make the best of it. But the veterans who struggle mentally um, or, you know, they, I don't know how to put this. They don't get the the same respect from the the population, military or civilian, uh, that a wounded veteran gets. Mm -hmm. Because somebody who looks at me has a level of compassion, a little, little bit of, you know, they can see it. They want to think that. And I cannot count how many times I've been in a restaurant and uh, I've had somebody come up and be like, thank you for your service. And I always, you know, oh, this is a veteran and this is a veteran. The entire table is a veteran. And, you know, make sure that everybody's service is appreciated. And, uh, even this week, like last night, I was at the Atlanta Braves baseball game and obviously got brought up to a couple of times. And I was with a bunch of veterans and, I, and and I know those guys have struggled. And so I, every single time I was like, yep, these guys are veterans too. You know, they, they you know, this one is medically retired and this one retired. And, you know, I just, I want everybody's service to be yeah. recognized, not just the wounded veterans because service is raising your hand and, 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 and serving your nation, whatever capacity you chose to do it, whether you're a cook or infantry or, you know, even doing my finances, that's service. Mm-hmm. Getting blown up or injured isn't service. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you've definitely carried a certain level of selflessness. And it, again, it's uh, it's awesome to hear that side of it and how much, because you could definitely take, I feel like, the opportunities who that have come to you one of two ways. You could be kind of the, the, the snidey, injured vet who's like yes i have all these amazing opportunities and i'm just gonna flourish in them and, and do whatever um but from everybody i've talked to that's that's worked with you or or been involved with anything that you've done um they've all said you know t- that you're just an incredible person that just shares the love with everybody and mm. um it's awesome that you brought it up and said it because uh just so that you know i've heard it from other people as well um i appreciate that you know, and, and, you know, we go back to, you know, that young, immature kid who was all, you know, very selfish and it was all about him. But, you know, I've been very blessed and I and I, and I want to share that with others. You know, I've had great opportunities, uh, whether it's events or places I've gone, 
um, things I've got to do. And I want to share those with my friends and other veterans. So mm-hmm. that's important to me. So like this injury really made it more about other people than myself. Like yeah. I know I'm taken care of. Uh, I'm not going to struggle in that aspect. And I just want to make sure everybody else feels appreciated. So it really has for me been, been a life changing as far as uh, not having to worry about myself anymore. Mm-hmm. And I, I know, you know, I want to go forward with, you know, you brought up lightly, but I, you know, we understand that you were an ambassador for the Gary Sinise, um foundation. And then you went on to work, you know, on staff as a military and veteran resource manager. How did all that begin? Uh, surgeries. <laughs> really? Uh, yeah. Uh, I was flying out to LA quite a bit out to UCLA. They had a top plastic surgeon there and he was doing all my facial reconstructions. And I, I had a, uh, a friend of mine, command sergeant major Jeff Millinger, uh, who is in the Ranger Hall of Fame, phenomenal guy, and he was so high up in the military that, uh, well, actually, when I got blown up in Iraq, he was the senior sergeant major over there for all of Iraq. He was the U.S. Force Iraq Army, and so he had called some friends out there uh, that had been on USO tours, and uh, and ended up being Leanne Tweeden who. Uh, has been on the cover of Max on magazine, model, and she's on sports casting, and she's gone on like 32 USO tours herself. And he called her up and was like, can you just take, you know, Mike and his mom out to lunch? He's up there for surgery. So she picked us up and she's like, oh, you know, I got a surprise before, before we go to lunch. And before we knew it, we're on the CBS lot. We're walking up to this, this RV and she bangs on the door and, you know, Gary Sinise walks out. And it, it was back when they were still filming uh, CSI New York. So mm-hmm. he's got his bad, his fake gun on, you know, and he's all <laughs> looking, you know, the rule and everything. But in my head, I was still like, and part of my French, you know, but I'll just say crap. But I was like, holy crap, it's Lieutenant Dan, you know. <laughs> um, it was, I mean, for us, you know, it's the way you're always going to see him. Oh, totally. Uh, it was such an iconic role for him. Uh, and he loves it, you know, and um, so we got to hang out, you know, basically in his dressing room and, you know, they were filming that day. So we got to, to go on, on set and watch him film and afterwards he stopped everything and hand walked us through all the different sets and we took photos. And we had gone back and hung out in uh, the trailer a little bit longer. I got to meet other another actor, uh, D.B. Sweeney, mm-hmm. those who like remember cutting edge and guards of stone mm-hmm. we're all just laughing and joking and i'm still in touch with him and and you know we we literally had this like friendship and uh you know michael broderick who's a marine veteran i became very close with who's also uh, getting more speed in hollywood now yeah um, it was just a friendship kind of developed and then as i was doing more with the veteran population and going to these events I kept bumping into him. And at the time in um, 2010, well, 2010 it was established, but 2011 was really the first year that they they had the Gary Sneeze Foundation. And I can remember him calling me up. He's like, Mike, when are you going to, you know, come do stuff for me? You know, and and he's like, I would love to have you come speak at one of my fundraisers. I'm like, sure. And so I had flown to D.C. to speak at a fundraiser. And the next day, I flew home and that night he called me. He's like, 
So I have these like volunteer positions, but they're all handpicked by me. We call them ambassadors. Would you be one of my ambassadors? I'm like, absolutely. You know, so I kind of got to do more, you know, behind the scenes stuff. And back then they were a small organization, you know, they didn't have a lot of employees. Um, now there's like 50 of them. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, so they've really grown over the la- last 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, they asked me to do more and more, and it was taking me away from my public speaking. Um, so that's when they had offered me the job. And uh, I enjoy doing it. Uh, but honestly, uh, I had to be on the road constantly, nonstop. I was spending like 280 days on the road a year. Jeez. Um, and and after doing it for about two years, it just caught the, the travel caught up with me. And I, I just kind of had to take a step back. Um, so I'm still an ambassador. I'm still going to do stuff with the organization. Uh, I still love what they're doing. Uh, I just couldn't do it in that capacity. Yeah, that's incredible. And I, I think it's more of a, a funny question because you brought up that he loves it. But, I mean, obviously, you know, Gary being a friend of yours, how often, I guess, even you being around him, do you think people just are constantly quoting like Forrest Gump lines to him? Constantly. Constantly. And does, he, he doesn't get tired of it? No, he, wow. I mean, they'll tell you, he, he would, so people will often ask why Gary's so passionate about giving to the military and um, people don't realize like his uncle and his father were World War II veterans, you know, and, and he says, you know, they, he didn't grow up in that kind of atmosphere. They didn't talk about it. You know, we hear that quite a bit and he was just a slightly too young to get drafted. Um, but his sister had gotten married to a Vietnam veteran. Oh, okay. And it really became very, very close. To me. And they, you know, he always, you know, would hear the stories and they would talk and stuff. He's like, you know, we're basically the same age. And how do you have all these life experiences that I don't have? You know, mm. um, and he just had an appreciation for it. And so when he had his theater in Chicago, uh, excuse me, uh, Steppenwolf Theater, uh, Chicago, the dress rehearsal, they would open it up to the kind of like the right before they would go live, they would bring veterans in that the veterans be their test audience. And as it grew, then they had a veterans night where they would actually get to see the full show in its entirety and everything. Um, and so he's actually been giving back to our community for 40 years. Jeez. Uh, so this isn't, you know, a lot of people, he didn't get the publicity until maybe OIF, OEF. But this is somebody who's been doing it for 40 years. That's incredible. It probably to him then, because uh, if, if he was serving uh, veterans before Forrest Gump, I imagine for him, you know, being that that character in that movie mm-hmm. was probably a huge honor for him, I, w- I would think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if, and if you pick up his book, Grateful American, he talks about that. And uh, I mean, I obviously know it. it yeah, to a T, but I'm not, you know, I'll, I'll plug his book, Grateful American. And if you really want to know more about that whole role and on how that all came about, then definitely got to get the book and read it because um, it wasn't a guaranteed thing. Yeah, I'll put it, I'm putting it on my list right now. I've got to read uh, nine books over the next nine weeks anyway. So <laughs> this will be a perfect <laughs> one for me to add. That's pretty funny, though, that he still gets a kick out of it because, man, I don't know. I feel like. If, if I'm in person with him, I want to be as professional as possible, but it's so hard and so tempting just to throw that ice cream line at him. 
Or, or even say his name as a as the way you know Tom Hanks says Forrest Gump, but say his name, Lieutenant Diane. <laughs> you know, so yeah, I mean, but again, like he he knows and he respects that persona. Like um, that's cool. But yeah. he also realizes the connection it allows him with the veterans that most celebrities will never have. Mm-hmm. Well, I feel like he's yeah. just done more too than a lot of celebrities have. You know, I it, definitely agree with that. But then there's there are, you know, what I always say is there's a lot of celebrities are just I had a bad taste in Hollywood uh, in general because of the few people outspoken about stuff that you kind of stereotype them and stuff. Mm-hmm. But when I actually started doing stuff out there, there are a lot of people who are doing stuff with the veteran community mm-hmm. uh, that just don't take publicity for it. No, that makes sense. Um, I've I've had sets opened up to me. I've uh, I had a very well-renowned actor who would allow me just to send people over and he would shut down production and, and actually take the veterans around and spend time with them. Wow. Uh, so it's things like that, that you just don't realize, uh, because you don't hear about it. Yep. Hmm. Now, and that, that kind of goes into my next question. Cause you know, especially since you've been around it so much, um, with, you know, different ways to give back to veterans and, and ways to help veterans. What do you think has been the most impactful for veterans? Like what is, what is the thing that helps veterans the most? Um, that's almost like a, I don't want to call it a, a different charities, but charitable contributions and, and ways to really help. Um, that isn't um, necessarily you know, I, just a handout. You know, well, one, you never want to make it feel like it's charity or hand out yeah. or, or pity or anything like that. But um, there are so many skilled people in the world, and we can't all be veterans. Like, we need ditch diggers. We need doctors. We need lawyers. I mean, we need everybody. Um, and you'll find uh, in this event world, there's a lot of guilt for people who didn't serve. So they, a lot of them want to give back because they didn't do it or they feel guilty that, that they didn't do it or they had an injury that prevented them from doing it. And so you find a lot of these people giving back now. Um, but as far as like how to give back, um, you know, if you can help a transitioning veteran uh, with a job, obviously in today's job market, that's impactful. You know, whether it's it's allowing them to apprentice on a workshop or help them with a resume, but welcome them, welcome them back into wherever they choose to settle into the community. And, you know, there's some great national charities and they're, you know, like the Gary Sinise Foundation. But what I always say is if you're really looking to, to give back, find out who's doing what in your community and, and help those veterans. Cause mm-hmm. if you help those veterans thrive in the community, you're going to, you're going to thrive because they're helping your area. Um, you know, so, you know, if, if you don't know where to turn, uh, to find out who's helping veterans in your area, almost anywhere you go, there's a, a VFW or American Legion or National Guard Armory. You know, go down to those locations and, and find out who's helping them or what do they need or how you might be able to help them. Yeah. And and again, if you can do it at a community level, that that veteran might even have a connection with you where you also get a friend. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I, you know, it's it's awesome to hear you say that because that's been my perspective for a long time, and and you're not the only person that we've had on the podcast that has said it now, and it's something that seems so easy, yet after talking to, you know, the 71 veterans we have in the book, and then countless more that we've talked to outside of it, mm-hmm. it's the thing that veterans probably have the hardest time with is finding a job that will accept them that gives them value that you know allows them the room to grow and to grow the business and it's it it, again it seems like a trivial easy thing but from everybody we've talked to it's it's something that's not as simple as it would seem um and i don't know if it's because it's a difficult thing for people to to take a chance on a veteran or what it is, but. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's twofold. I mean, obviously veterans come with some stereotype, negative stereotypes, whether it's, you know, he's a disgruntled veteran or PTS or whatever it might be. And, mm-hmm. you know, we, we have to prove those things wrong um, and not feed into those stereotypes by, if you don't get the job, don't blow up on the people, you know, cause people talk, you know? Yeah. Um, but at the same time, well, yeah, we want these corporations and these small businesses to hire veterans. And um, a little bit of it is on the veteran themselves, though. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's, man, I can't I count how many times I talk to veterans and they think they're going to get out of the Army making six figures at wherever they get hired. And I'm like, no, dude. And he's like, yeah, but I was a sergeant or I was a squad leader of platoons. So I'm like, yeah, no, it doesn't translate. Mm-hmm. Uh, the skills and the things that can make you successful but you might have to stop it. You might have to start at the bottom or you might have to start as the entry level supervisor. But if you bring everything that made you successful in the military into that position, then you're going to start passing your peers. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Um, Because they're going to think you're showing them up. And in a lot of ways we do because it's just our work ethic. Mm -hmm. Um, But they have to be willing, not necessarily come in at the top and not like, it's great to value yourself and know and be confident, but it's also the understanding that you may have to, you're, you're starting another career, you know, you're, you're moving from one career to another career. So you might not come in at the equal level. You might have to drop down a little bit. Um, but again, bring what made you successful and you'll be successful there too. Well, I think it's almost like, you know, how you train, you know, you go through boot camp and then you do all kinds of other training you know, on a day-to-day basis, you know, it, it's almost like you have to start that all over again, but more in the civilian community and with the workforce, you know, it's, it's like you have to go into it and, and basically reteach yourself what it's like to have a regular job and work with, you know, mostly employees that have never served. And, and, but I think that, like you said, if you carry that same mindset that you had in your military career over and you go into it wanting to learn and, and adapt, you're going to be exceeding people at a much higher rate and at a faster rate than, you know, the, the standard, I would say, civilian that hasn't served just because of your, you know, capacity for learning and what you've been through in your experiences. But we also have to let veterans know that transitioning isn't a dirty thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's about perspective. So if, if we start back at the beginning of time, you know, um, you've been tra- transitioning on some aspect of your enti- entire life, you know, going from, you know, elementary to becoming the junior high kid to the high school kid, 
each level being a little different and a little bit more responsibility and a little bit th new things that you had to learn. And whether you went to college or right in the military, that was a huge transition where you're changing mindset and daily activities. And even in the military, changing duty positions, new, new things that you had to learn, uh, changing units meant new SOPs, new ways of doing things. Mm -hmm. uh, so moving from the military to a, another career, it's just that next transition, but it's something you've been doing your entire life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great perspective to have on it. And I don't even know if I, I looked at it that way when I first got out. Um, <laughs> I, I probably would, I know, I know I was looking at it like I've got to just, well, I guess it, I was looking at it as a transition, but it was more of a hard stop transition. It wasn't a, you know, take some of the skills and things that I've learned with me. It was a, all right, I was in the military. Now I'm not. I don't have anything to carry along with me, mm. um, which is was looking back on it, the, the worst mindset to have. <laughs> well, Mike, but, is, is but, we, but a lot uh, of I think most veterans would feel that way to an extent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, you know, and I think it's. I don't know, I, you know, I don't want to classify everybody, but I, I feel like there there's a few different ways that people do go. It's either the. I was in the military, now I'm not, and it's just like a hard stop transition. Some people go back home and that makes it a little bit easier, uh, you know, to just go back into your hometown and fall back into the things you were doing before. Or some people hang on to it and hang on to their, you know, their buddies that they served with and, and do the frequent calls and do the buddy checks and go to the events and things like that. And uh, that that part of it was not me. I was I was the one who just shut it all off. Yeah, but I bet, I mean, and I'd be curious to see if you, you felt empty in some level where you were missing that camaraderie and that, that the stuff that we had in the military. Because um, there was, I mean, it was years ago now, um, but I read a study. And typically when veterans left the military, between five and seven years, they would completely shut off from the military. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, but after about five and seven years, um, and if you think about that transition, you know, you're getting out of the military, you got to find a job, you got to move your family or you're going to have a family. But after about five to seven years, things kind of calm down. You're established in your career. Your family's probably doing well. You're probably living where you want to live. And it gives you that time to think. And that's when uh, things like the VFW and American Legions were seeing spikes of veterans around that five to seven range. Um, coming back because they were missing what they once had. Mm. That's so funny. At some point, if you shut it off, if you ever felt that way, where you have you wanted to start reaching back out. Absolutely, so and that's I, pretty accurate I actually, timeline. Yeah, it's very accurate timeline. But it's funny because uh, you know the intro in the book that I write is is more or less right in line with that too. Is uh, you know my different phases that I went through in transition. And uh, that's exactly what it was, was reflecting back and, and looking at my service and everything that I had done and the people that I had served with and just started, you know, all started coming back almost like flashbacks, but in a good way. It was like, man, why didn't I carry this with me? Why didn't I, you know, stay in touch with these people? Why mm -hmm. didn't I do this no. and do that? And that's really kind of the, you know, the major inspiration for me for why I wanted to do this book. And I think that, you know, veterans reading that would 
relate to that in a lot of ways, whether they stayed in touch with people or they did that they could say, you know, yeah, I follow that timeline or I tried to avoid that timeline. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. And as Mike, as, as we, um, you know, start to wrap things up, tell us some of the things that you're working on right now at the moment and, you know, where, you know, you see yourself going forward from here. Well, you know, we're still, you know, like most people were recovering from this Corona thing. Yep. So thank you. Some have been slow. Um, I would say, um, for me personally, but things are starting to pick back up. There's more events. Uh, there's more opportunities that are starting to pop back up now. A little bit of normalcy starting to come back. Um, so I've been in talks with a couple of different organizations and events, uh, veteran-related things. And mm-hmm. I know I'll be on DC in November. So uh, you know, I'm not gonna. I'm not the type of guy to sit still too long. Um, so I definitely want to keep giving back to our community. Yeah. And that and really that's my goal um is just to make veterans feel like their service mattered do you have anything planned for obviously this year marks the 20-year anniversary and you know obviously with um biden's recent annou- announcement that you know they're pulling all troops out of afghanistan on september 11th 2021 do you get do you have kind of a thought of plans of what you might be attending or, or things that you might be wanting to do for the 20-year anniversary you know, I really haven't even given it much thought to, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, I did sit down with some individuals at Ranger Regiment and over lunch, um, about two weeks ago, you know, and had a discussion about what that climate's going to look like soon. Um, and what I, what I like to say is, you know, we might be pulling out of there, but there's all these other things going on in the world right now. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I don't think veterans are going to be slowed as much as they think they are with that, that pullout. So mm, yeah, uh, they're still going to need the same level of support. So I'm sure on some level, I'll be kind of spreading that message message that, you know, yeah, we might be closing one chapter, but it's not the end of the book and there's still a lot of need out there. Yeah. It's just crazy to think it's been 20 years. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it, it's insane. And, you know, I even think about, you know, with my own personal injury of being when I hit the 14 mark in February, um, it, it, crazy. I mean, you know, time flies by. We, we all know it and we all get a little bit older. Um, but it's just surprisingly how fast it went by. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, let me let me ask you um, this kind of in closing, um, you know, for all the things you've done and all the service that you've done to give back. um what inspires you daily to keep giving back and to, and to keep having that selfless perspective? Uh, well, one, I mean, um, I do have a servant kind of attitude, you know, it, it, again, like, um, I, I just, I, the new perspective I've, I've, I've gotten on life, um, knowing how incredibly lucky I am. And I mean, even the disability, you know, I give my injuries puts me in a financial uh, way where I can do these things. You know, oftentimes veterans, you know, tell me, you know, they wish they could do what I do, uh, but they have to go to work, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and even though I do pick up some supplemental income through, through different projects and consulting or speaking, uh, you know, my main source of income was, you know, my disability check. 
uh, which has made me very, very lucky to be able to do and give back to our community. And uh, in a lot of ways, that's what wakes me up and motivates me. That's my, that is my sense of purpose. And when, when I talk about sense of purpose, um, even to no matter who's in the audience, you know, I, I tell them, you know, everybody's a little different, you know, and, and just because your sense of purpose isn't the same as mine, that's okay. Like we, I know people that their, their sense of purpose, the thing that wakes them up out of, and gets them out of bed every day is their family. You know, they, they thrive to give for their families. You know, I, I know uh, for me in the military, my sense of purpose was always the military. I was career orientated. You know, I wanted to, to gain knowledge and, and have increased responsibilities, move up the chain. Um, and for that time in my life, that was perfect for me. Um, I know people that are money driven and if that's what drives them to get out of bed every day and, and not go into that black hole and 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 in their own life then i'm like go for it go make the money you know give your family uh you know thrive to to you know go up in the career uh but for me now it is our community i feel like the military has given me so much and you know in my own way i can give back to that that's awesome that's just incredible and mike i i can't thank you enough for not only you know, wanting to be a part of this book that we've been working so hard on and, you know, having you share your message and your story in there, but also coming on tonight and sharing even more in depth of things that, you know, I'm just learning for the first time about you. And, and I'm sure Dan is too, even after all the research we've done on you, it's just incredible to hear your full length story and where your life has taken you and how you continue to serve and help other veterans. It, it's truly inspiring. Oh, and I appreciate you, appreciate you one for allowing me to tell my story and and spread that message but also for the book you know uh, having 71 different stories uh that you know is going to tell really the gamut of, of so many different experiences that veterans face and they're not all the same and some are similar um i think it's going to be so impactful so i appreciate you guys' hard work on making that happen of course yeah and and thank you again for having you on and uh we look forward to staying in touch with you and We'll be in touch here shortly then. Absolutely. And again, I look forward to it. All right. Thanks, Mike. Talk to you soon.